Amen. It is so great to be together, to hear each other, not just sing to God, but part of the beauty of singing together is that we're also singing to one another and encouraging one another through the Word of God. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, whether a physical copy or a device or whatever you have, find Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. And we'll read from verse 30 to 38. Genesis chapter 19, verse 30 to 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that, you, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger also, and lay with him. And he did not know when she lie down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, for he is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of God. The Bible doesn't present a crisp and clean picture of humanity. Though this isn't something that we'll often encounter in modern preaching or in a verse of the day, Bible reading plan, whatever that is. As we work through the scriptures, we see that humanity has blown it time and time again. And you often won't even hear, I I can't even think of the last time I ever heard anyone preach on such a rated R text of the Bible as this. Because this doesn't often fit with what much modern preaching does. A lot of modern preaching wants to present you, us, humanity, as heroes, as David, conquering the giants of our life. But the truth is, we're really not the heroes. Jesus is. The Bible is not ultimately about any of us. It's about God. It's for us, but it is not about us. In fact, in the scriptures... We don't simply blow it. We often blow it in the same ways other did, others did before us. In fact, as we think about this passage this morning, this might sound a little familiar. If you've been with us as we've been going through Genesis, Lot has just escaped judgment in Sodom, and now he's found himself naked and ashamed. And this might remind us or bring our minds back to Noah, who after being rescued through the judgment in the ark, planted a vineyard, 
and entered into a very sordid situation with his children after getting drunk on the grapes that he planted in his vineyard. Noah was left drunk and naked and ashamed. Though God created Adam in the garden back in Genesis 1 and 2 to live before him naked and unashamed, sin has broken that fellowship with God and left us with broken relationships with one another. Rather than being naked and unashamed, Lot is left drunk and longing to be clothed. And we shouldn't come away from a passage like this and think the Bible is commending Lot and his daughters to us. Because one of the key things in in interpreting and understanding the Bible is to realize that the Bible often describes what it condemns. The Bible often, it's very unique in that it will speak about things it says are sinful and show accounts of it in order to show us where sin will lead you. It often has accounts of things that it says not to do. There are passages that prescribe things for us to do, such as Jesus' command to love your neighbor. And then there's passages that describe something that happened in order to teach us a lesson. And these descriptions and examples, such as Lot and his daughters, are negative examples of where sin can take you. And so as we consider this passage, we'll look at it in three parts. First, we'll consider the fall of Lot, the plot of his daughters, and finally the birth of two nations. First, let's consider the fall of Lot. The fall of of Lot. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. I love the irony of the text because Lot is heading up to the hills while simultaneously hitting rock bottom. When we met Lot, You would have never thought that this would be the final scene of his story. He was very wealthy, young, successful back in chapter 13. Lot and his uncle Abraham were living together, and they were both so blessed and prosperous with herds and livestock that they had run out of room to live together. They just couldn't fit in their land they were living in, all of their stuff. So Abraham graciously let Lot decide where he'd move and where he'd go. And we see that Lot chose to move outside of Sodom because a place appeared to his eyes to look like the garden of the Lord. And yet what was really, what, what appeared to be a lush garden was really a wicked city. He had trusted his sight instead of God's word. And so he settled in a tent outside of Sodom with livestock and his family. And see, and things seemed pretty good, right? But if you remember, just a chapter later in chapter 14, Lot and all of his stuff get taken captive. And there's this huge battle between these nine kingdoms. And one of the kingdoms is the kingdom of Sodom. So Abraham has to go and rescue Lot. And he gets this ragtag group of 318 soldiers that dwell in his house. And they conquer these kingdoms and rescue Lot. If you were with us when we looked at that, I said, I imagined this much like the scene from Mulan, right? Where all those guys are training in order to rescue China. They're training and then they conquer these kingdoms and they rescue Lot. Whether it was like that or not, Lot really should have learned his lesson from that, shouldn't he? Maybe living in Sodom wasn't a very good idea with how wicked and volatile the area was. 
But instead, after Lot's rescued and he gets to keep his stuff and his life is spared, he actually ends up moving from outside the city to further in the city. And then last week in chapter 18, which is decades later, we find Lot not only ended up living in Sodom, but he was sitting in the gates. He had settled in the town and become a sort of city official. He was now deeply invested and involved in the wicked affairs of the city. And last week we saw that God destroyed Sodom due to their wicked desires, but yet God was simultaneously merciful to Lot. Look back at chapter 19, verse 15. Look at this. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men, who we learn are actually angels in the story, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and Lot being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. Notice, Lot lingered, and yet the Lord was merciful to drag him out of the city. And God even allowed Lot to bargain with him. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. And Lot said, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servants have found favor, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me. And I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. So he says, rather than escaping to the hills, he says, God, can I go to this small nearby town? Because he said, Lord, we know nothing bad ever happens in small towns. (laughs) Right? And then here's what God says. Here's what God says. Verse 18. Behold, I grant you this favor also, that that I will not overtake the city of which you've spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, and Zoar means little. So it's literally a small town named Little, and he got to flee to Zoar. He and his family were fleeing the fire, falling on the city. And if you remember, Lot's wife turned and looked back and became a pillar of salt. And we saw that the problem wasn't the look of her eye, but the longing of her heart. Rather than fleeing Sodom, she longed to have Sodom back in her life. And what began with a young, wealthy family living in proximity to this city escalated to them being in a place of power and influence over this prosperous city and then ended with Lot as a widower and his two daughters living with him in a cave. Be warned, you'll see this in your notes, sin will always take you further than you planned. Sin will always take you further than you planned. It took decades for Lot to get here, but he got here. He began with tons of stuff, and now he's lost his wife, his home, everything he has. They're living among the caves, which were kind of the graveyards of the ancient world. Sin will take you further than you wanted, and sin will take more from you than you could ever imagine. 
Now imagine, now think of this. He had bargained with God in chapter 18 saying, God, let me live in Zoar because living in this small town would be better than living in a cave. But if you look at verse 30, he's now ended up fleeing from Zoar out of fear and going where? To the cave. To the place where God initially told him to go, God's plan A is always better than your alternative. God's plan A was always better. We don't know exactly what Lot was afraid of, but I think it was because Lot probably found that the people of Zoar weren't that much different than the people that lived in Sodom. That the small town really wasn't all that much different than the big town, because hear me, sinful people live in both. There are sinful people that live in both. And so they fled to the hills, and as they're fleeing upward, we see the descent of Lot, the fall of Lot. And the text moves from the fall of Lot to the plot of his daughters. From the fall of Lot to the plot of his daughters. His daughters came together with an absolutely disgusting plan. Look at verse 31. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He, do, he did not know when she lie down or when she arose. So here we see Lot's firstborn, we don't even get a name for her. Came to the younger, and, and here's what she says, verse 31. Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Now, I think it's unlikely that she meant that there was not a man left on the whole earth because they had just lived in Zoar, and there were likely men in Zoar. There were likely some men there. This was a response formed in desperation and hopelessness. Who was going to look after their aging father? Who would support and look after them? They were a marked people. Consider, the, consider this. These people from the big city where fire has just rained down on them, escaped, and now lives in this small town. <laughs> They're marked people. They're absolutely marked people with a reputation, and they had nothing. So they come up with this wicked idea to save themselves. And here we see Jeremiah 17.9 on full display. Jeremiah 17.9 on full display. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Here we see it. The heart is sick. This idea of following your heart has never ended well. So Lot takes his daughters out of Sodom, but he couldn't get Sodom out of his daughters. You'll see this quote there in your notes. One scholar put it this way. And the result was that though God judged all of Sodom except Lot and his daughters, Sodom was reborn in their very lives. In other words, Sodom was reborn in the cave that night. They were going to get their dad drunk and have a child with them, with him. And this is a double warning for us. First, I think, it's, I, think I need to say that, that the, the Bible clearly condemns any sort of incest like this in all of its forms. Genesis 1 and 2 is clear about this. 
in the created order, but it's also explicitly condemned later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And I'll be honest, I don't think Genesis 19 is, is showing this as a positive thing for us in the way it speaks about it. But I would also have us notice the warning here about the careless consumption of alcohol. See the warning here. The text is clear that this isn't something Lot would have ever done in his right mind. Lot would have never taken this step if he were in his right mind. And it seems like his daughter knew that. But they did know that his dad really couldn't handle having his wine and being able to, to do it responsibly. Now, hear me. Hear me. And I probably will have somebody who, who isn't a fan of this, but that's okay. The Bible doesn't condemn all alcohol use. The Bible doesn't do that. Paul says, hey, Timothy, take some wine for your stomach. Hear this. Jesus actually drank wine on a number of occasions. What did he do at the wedding of Cana? He didn't turn it into Welch's grape juice, right? He turned water into wine. And if you think he turned it into wine, but he didn't drink it, I, I just don't know what, what you do with the text there, right? And at the Lord's Supper, it's very clear that Jesus drank wine on that night. So the Bible doesn't condemn all alcohol use. It actually calls it a gift at many places from God. But like any gift, it can be abused. And it's one of the gifts that the Bible warns over and over and over again can be abused and can destroy your life in a way a lot of other gifts can't. Look what the book of Proverbs says. First, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Pretty, pretty clear warning, right? It's a mocker and it's a brawler, so be careful with it. Look what Proverbs 23 says. This has a number of warnings for us. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things. Your hearts utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Be warned, even good gifts like alcohol can be perverted to destroy you. Drink can control you and cause you to do the unthinkable. And let me tell you, people often go, well, I don't need to hear this again. Hear this. Obviously, people still need to hear this again because this continues to be a problem. For young adults, older adults, for people of all ages, we need to hear this. And the Bible is warning us through this case of Lot and his daughters to be careful. You are not as strong and unbreakable as you think. So there's a warning, a clear warning here for us. And it should strike us as odd. Think about this. That Lot and his daughters would have alcohol at all. I mean, think about it. These people have lost everything. They're living in a cave, and yet they still found a way to bring some wine along. <laughs> I think that shows there probably was a problem. If you've lost everything, and the one thing that you still want is a Bud Light at the end of the day, there might be a little bit of a problem, right? 
wine should have been the least of their worries, but they found a way to bring it along, right? And then the next day, look what happens. The younger daughter follows the older daughter's example. Verse 34. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. So this wasn't just going to happen one night. They were able to get him two nights in a row. There's obviously a problem here. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. See that? They get him on a second night in a row. And let me tell you, wine in those days was was not nearly as alcoholic as a lot of the stuff you can go get today. So this took a long time. This took a lot of drinking. This took a lot of time for him to get there. Friends, it would not take a lot of us that long to get there. So consider this a warning. They got him again. And as I read this passage, a question just lingered in my mind. Why not just go back to Abraham? Why not just go back? I mean, Abraham loved Lot and his family. They could have journeyed back there and joined this covenant household. They could have gone back where God promised that his blessing to the world would begin. Rather than flee where salvation would be found, they attempted to save themselves rather than trust the promises of God. They sought to save themselves. Hey, we don't need to go back to Abraham, and and that would require repentance and letting go of these things we love. Let's just try to save ourselves. Rather than join the nation God was building, a nation that we're told would be a fountainhead of blessing to the world, they created their own nations. They created their own nations. In fact, this is where the passage closes. So we look from the fall of Lot to the plot of his daughters to the birth of two nations. The birth of two nations. Look at verse 37. Look at this. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So the women give birth to two sons, one named Moab, and, and the name Moab means from the father. That's icky to me. I don't know if that's icky to anybody else, but that's just icky. To me. And Ben-Ami means son of my people. So Lot becomes both the father and the grandfather of these two children at the same time. Just, oh, right? This makes me like, it's just gross, right? A truly rock bottom moment. And if there was any honor left in Lot's life, it's gone. <laughs> and out of these two sons, two nations would come. Nations who, if you read through the rest of the Old Testament, were going to be antagonistic toward Israel over and over and over again. The Moabites and the Ammonites had a long-standing rivalry with the nation of Israel. They were going to fight and bicker and war and seduce one another. I mean, there were going to be all kinds of problems here. But I would have us to consider that even in this moment of darkness, there is a seed of light. God was working an incredible plan of redemption. Let me have you mark down a great thing for you to read, I think, this 
uh, Sunday, if you have time this afternoon or even this week, would be to read the book of Ruth. Because in the book of Ruth, it's all about a Moabite woman, who, so a descendant of this whole mess, who became a true worshiper of the God of Israel, and she married an Israelite man named Boaz, and they became the great-grandparents of a guy named King David. Interesting enough, again, you see that there in your notes, that Moab eventually came Ruth, and then King David, one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history, would descend out of this whole mess. And in fact, another king was going to come through uh, this son named Ben-Ami. Look at 1 Kings 14.21. Look at this, 1 Kings 14.21. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. See it? Rehoboam, yes, Rehoboam, you'll come to find out, was a wicked king who led the people into sin, but it's significant. The son of Solomon, who would go on to reign, came through an Ammonite. Of all the people that could have continued through, a descendant of Ben-Ami, a descendant of this whole mess, God was weaving an incredible story. And God was doing something even more than that because the line wouldn't stop with Rehoboam or David. In fact, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1. The opening of the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in your New Testament, And look at this, some incredible, incredible things here. And Matthew chooses to open his gospel in a very Genesis-like way. If you've been with us, you know Genesis is full of genealogies, right? And so he opens Matthew in a very Genesis-like way with a genealogy. And as we look at this list, I hope there's a lot of names that stand out to you, but I want two to grab your attention. Look at this. The book of verse 1, so Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew desires to show through his gospel that Jesus the, is the one whom all the promises to Abraham and David find their fulfillment in. That's his whole purpose. This is his thesis. This is the whole point of his book, right? And then he continues. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, here we go, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And then look, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. You see it? Through the birth of Moab and Ben-Ami, God had a plan. No matter how dark the situation would be, Jesus Christ was going to come. God promised to bless the nations through Abraham and through his offspring and see it. Descendants of Moabite and Ammonites would be blessed through being brought into the nation of Israel. And ultimately, the true son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, was going to come out of this dark cave. 
the Savior of the world, would come through Moabite and Ammonite women. This is a big deal that the Savior of the world would come through Moabite and Ammonite women. The light of the world would come through this dark cave. The hope of the world through a hopeless situation. I hope that Genesis 50-20 is the banner over your life. Here's what it says. As for you, sure, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, but I think this expands far more than just Joseph's situation. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Whatever your situation, whatever it is, it is not out of God's hands. Never, because what others intend for evil, God intends for good. What these daughters in this cave intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, you likely are thinking, well, what about Lot? What are we to think about Lot? We don't ever hear about him again. This is the last thing we hear about him. What a way to go out, right? What a way to to be remembered. This is the last thing we ever hear about him. And not only did we see that he moved to Sodom, we saw in Genesis 18 he offered his daughters to a lustful mob, and then he got drunk and did all of this. And So what are we to think about him? Well, 2 Peter chapter 2 says something incredible. I think we need to see. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. And if he, being God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for, at that, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Did you notice it? Lot was called righteous not once, not twice, three times in this passage. What is Peter thinking? Peter says, hey, Lot was greatly distressed by the wickedness of Sodom and he was tormented in his soul. And he's an example of how God rescues the godly. How in the world could Peter justify this? Well, consider first that there's nobody better to write about this than Peter. (laughs) I mean, if anybody knew what it was like to blow it, Peter certainly did, didn't he? Denying Jesus three times right? Yet he spoke of himself at the very opening of that letter as being righteous, not in in and of himself, but righteous through faith in Jesus. It's because Peter knew that any goodness and righteousness he had was not his own and never would be. His only hope was through the perfect life, the substitutionary death, And the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, through that, God declares sinful people to be righteous. He knew the incredible truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21. See this, that for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
He knew that righteousness couldn't be received by church attendance, by the Lord's Supper or baptism, but only by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. Friends, hear me. Lot's righteousness wasn't his own. It was Jesus's. It was Christ. He was righteous because even through the mess of his life, he was still looking forward to the promise coming Messiah. Consider that through all the mess of Lot's life, Lot still picked up with Abraham and left everything back in the beginning, didn't he? And we don't know where his life ended up. And Peter even recognizes that while Lot had a messed up life, there was still fruit in his life. There was true evidence of faith there, even if it was a weak, immature faith. Consider this, Lot welcomed the angels and displayed hospitality to them. We saw that last week. He believed and responded to the warning of the angels to flee from the city. And unlike his wife, he didn't look back. He wanted to be gone from the city. And we're told that even while he lived in this city, his conscience was at war with him as he did. Before we're too hard on Lot, there's a lot of us that live in seasons and times of our life where our consciences are at war with us. And we're doing something or living in something and we hate it. We continue to do it. And Lot was in that very situation. Recall that Abraham prayed back in chapter chapter 18 that God would spare the righteous in the city. And that's exactly what God does. He rescues Lot and extends mercy in the process. And finally, I think this is a warning to be careful that we not draw conclusions about eternity based on a snapshot in someone's life. We are so prone to do that. And friends, our culture does this all the time. I don't think I have to give you any, any examples to know that we, that we tend to forever mark someone because they did something we don't like or find offensive or sinful. And let me tell you something. This isn't a problem with only one political party or simply a problem in the world, friends. This happens in these very walls as well. We mark people because, well, they did this. They did that. Remember that time, that mess they lived in? I'm not going to let that go. But shouldn't forgiven sinners be the quickest to forgive? Friends, hear me. We never hear about Lot again after this. He could have turned his life around. And I think we should be optimistic. I think we should lean more in to positive optimism for Lot and his faith in his life rather than negativity and pessimism for that. Because hear me, true believers can and do fall into grievous sins. They do. And the second you go, well, I don't think they will, you're probably the next one to fall into one. So be warned. True believers do and can fall into grievous sins. They can even stay there for a long time. Some can even get super far into their life. Some might even die there. Believers can often do like Lot with hearts that hate the sin they presently live in. And there are likely examples here today. And the answer to those of you who've blown it big and don't know what to do is not to continue looking at what you did but to rather repent and look to what Jesus has done. That Jesus has paid it all, even sins that might get you canceled in our world. I mean, Jesus has paid for those, 
and others might hold it against you, but hear me, Jesus doesn't. Who is it who can bring a charge against one of God's people, Romans 8 says? It is Christ who justifies. Who cares what the world has to say if it's covered in the righteousness of Jesus? And if God can rescue Lot and call him righteous, then hear me, there is hope for you. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever situations you've been in, hear me, if Lot can be cleansed and forgiven and called righteous and clean, then there is hope for you. And the answer for him wasn't moral reformation or simple, just reconstructing his life with more rituals. No, he needed resurrection. Lot had to hope in the coming Messiah, just as we now look back to the same Savior by faith. In that cave, darkness seemed to win. Yet God was at work in the darkness to bring about the light of the world. Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, would come out of this sinful mess in a cave. And he would live the perfect life that Lot couldn't live, that his daughters couldn't live, and that none of us could ever live. And he would die the death that we all deserve to die And he would rise again from the dead to offer you a new start. That through Jesus, regardless of what the world says, if you are in Jesus by faith, God's declaration over you is not guilty. It is righteous. It is new creation. It is son or daughter of mine. And if you take nothing home today, take this home. The lesson of Lot's life is best summed up in this quote by John Newton, who's famous for writing the hymn Amazing Grace. And here's what he said. Although my memories fade, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. The lesson of Lot's life is that Christ is a greater Savior than you are, sinner. And as we enter into this Easter season, hear this, Jesus has come. Light has conquered the darkness. Hope has conquered despair. And he has risen. He has risen indeed. And so how some of us need to respond is we just need to come forward and confess before God, I'm a mess. I have fallen. I have done many things in the dark cave of my soul that need forgiveness and to ask God to come to confess him as your Lord. And the Bible says that that when we place our faith in him, our sin was placed on Jesus and his righteousness is given to you and that he can forgive you right where you are. But the message for the rest of us, I think, is to be people of mercy who in this Easter season extend this message to others Who have you shared the gospel with over the last weeks or days or even over, even in this month? Who can you share just a message of hope that he has come, he has died, he has risen, he can offer forgiveness to any and all who come to him in faith? So the invitation is in this time to to pray where you are to Jesus, to call out to him to be saved and to talk to one of us following the service, because if God can turn the darkness of this cave with Lot and his daughters and transform it and and have a seed of light there, then he can do far more through your life and your circumstance 
He can forgive, redeem, restore, and declare his greatness as our great Savior. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, your word does not paint us as the heroes of the story. And I'm so thankful that that pressure is off. We don't have to save ourselves. We don't have to be the saviors of our own life. Our plots and our schemes and our wisdom fail every single time. So may we fling ourselves upon your mercy. May we find that if you could forgive Lot, and if you even had extended mercy to his daughters, that, Lord, there's mercy and grace available for anyone here within the sound of my voice. Whatever darkness it is, whether it be sexual sin whether it be faithlessness, unbelief, whether it be any set of sins that it might be, may we cast them upon you and find you to be a great Savior who will take them, plunge them into the depths of the sea and bring us out as resurrected new creations, not being held down and in dominion by sin any longer. I pray you would transform lives in these coming moments and may we all be impassioned and empowered to make the message and the good news known to all and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus name amen